those skills that we learn and that mindset shift that we hopefully, potentially could gain may actually help us broach those other problems that do, in a very large way, um, threaten the existence of humanity. And so, I don't know, I, I feel like it could actually be a really great capacity building exercise for us. That's, that's a rather optimistic outlook, but I think it's, it's a good potential too. Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can heal your neurology, which is really everything, food, lifestyle, mental patterns, the environment in which we live and work, medical treatments, pharmaceuticals, nature, culture, and politics. There is no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine, here with the incredible Meisha Indigo Jones, who has been a dear friend of mine since we met as neighbors in Port Townsend, Washington, 15 years ago. Meisha, your table was always open for conversation and a snack, and the running joke was to, to this day was that you would always be bringing out something delicious to eat, but instead of a crumpet, I was always offered green lentil stew, and instead of picking out a tea bag for me to have in the afternoons, I was offered nettles pulled from stems, dried in large paper bags in your living room with honey from the local beekeeper. Meisha, we know that you are a farmer at heart, but you did your undergraduate work in pre-med and uh, sociocultural anthropology with an emphasis on social and environmental justice as preventative healthcare, and your graduate program in medical anthropology as an ethnographic study of institutional and municipal food policy as it supports food sovereignty. So that is the lens through which we are viewing the impact of coronavirus on our society today. In these times of modern craziness, you've somehow just chosen not to engage much, and it's rare. I find it very rare. And you do participate thoughtfully. You do have a Facebook account, but you use it for bits of communication. And most of your life is actually fairly non-electric, non-internet. You've carved out for yourself in the San Juan Islands in Northwest Washington, a grounded and structured life. And as coronavirus disrupts schedules around the world, we're having so much confusion and fear and anger and frustration about figuring out who we are because so often we base who we are on what we do. If we're not doing what we usually do, then who are we and how do we restructure our lives? Our conversation today will focus on reinventing our sense of self and developing new routines, which can serve us at all times, coronavirus, pandemic, and beyond. And really our focus today is how do we make a life that serves us regardless of what's going on in our external environment? So welcome, Meisha. Thanks for being with us today. Hmm, thank you, Julie. This is such a sweet introduction. It's a <laughs> pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. You had put on Facebook a really amazing post about actually a little bit of gratitude for the coronavirus. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your thinking behind that. Hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, Hopefully we don't get hate mail. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I prefaced that. I think I said I, I don't, you know, at the risk of coming across as a cheery misanthrope, <laughs> I still, <laughs> I still do have, I do have some gratitude. Um, and Namely, it's not as scary of a virus as many. Like, you know, the Spanish flu, I think, had 30 to 40% mortality rate. You know, Ebola is just hideous. And um, bubonic plague, well, that really did a number on all of Europe. And it's, it's not that intense and it's not that serious. And so from that standpoint, I feel like it's giving us um, 
a capacity building potential where we can kind of amp up all of our all of our response systems and our collective our collective immune response. So looking from a, a geopolitical or um, economic or even local um, political responses, it's a really wonderful way for us to practice. It feels like a practice run because there are going to be worse viruses. There are going to be worse bacteria, um, especially as population increases and especially as poverty rates increase and especially as people's nutrition goes down and pollution increases. Like we are be- as a population, we are becoming more and more weakened and more and more susceptible to large, large scale epidemics. And so this one I feel is, it's kind of like softball. It's like, all right, let's give this a practice run. Let's see if we can get our, our institutional, our municipal, our local, our state, our maybe federal governing bodies coordinated in a way that's rational and useful. Um, and so I feel there's there's a great potential for this to be a skill building exercise in a in, in sense. And then from that, like branching from just having a more skillful response to communicable diseases, we can also use some of these, these mindset shifts potentially to address other issues that are global in nature. So this, this is global because we all share the same air. We all have lungs. Like, doesn't really matter what our, our immigration status is, what our racial status is, what our sexual orientation is, what country we live in. Like, we all have lungs, we all breathe air. And so this affects all of us. And there are lots of other issues that fall under that category as well, whether it be eutrophication of oceans or ozone layer destruction or climate change or soil loss. All of these things affect us as well by virtue of us by virtue of us being on this planet together and having all the same biological needs. And so in a very large way, we are practicing problem-solving skills that are global and we're practicing them hopefully in, in concert with others. And those skills that we learn and that mindset shift that we hopefully, potentially could gain may actually help us broach those other problems that do in a very large way um, threaten the existence of humanity. And so, I don't know, I I feel like it could actually be a really great capacity building exercise for us. That's, that's a rather optimistic outlook, but I think it's, it's a good potential too. So my little sister, um, I was on the phone with her the other day and she said, Mesha, this is the perfect time for you to start your weed eating cult. And I'm like, oh, thank you. You're such a lovely, dear snark. <laughs> what, she, what she meant to say was, Misha, my dear, beloved sister, you have such an extensive knowledge of wild food harvesting, and you're so enthusiastic about human ecology, and you have so many years, decades, actually, decades at this point, of food sovereignty work. This would be a perfect time for you to share your knowledge about local food harvesting and local food reliance and strengthening food systems and reducing plastic waste and reducing the need for these very complex product stream chains that are coming through many, many hands that we're all now nervous about because we don't want people touching our food. Um, (laughs) And for all these people who are afraid to go out to grocery stores or for grocery stores who might be running out of things, um, this is a great way to get lots of vegetables for free. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it is. I do believe it is from you. I learned about miner's lettuce, which fills our beds every winter, awesome. which we have been enjoying. Very good. Yeah, there's so many there's so many greens out right now. I mean, nettles are happening, which, mm-hmm. by the way, are a natural euphoric. Um, mm-hmm. Which also are can be helpful for stabilizing mast cells, which is part of the innate immune system, which can kind of go crazy on their own with mast cell activation syndrome, as well as be a part of um, making the lungs vulnerable to coronavirus. There is some evidence that mast cells are involved. So nettles can be helpful for all of these things. Awesome. Awesome. And they're free and they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and dandelions are up and about. And those are mm-hmm. wonderful because they're uh, a non-potassium-wasting diuretic. So at the end of winter when we've been eating lots of fats and proteins and things and our filtration organs would like a little flush, they're a great one. And they're tasty and they make good salads and peppercress. And I mean, we could go on and on and on. There's so many greens right now. And so I, I know- Can you mention a few more? Oh, sure. Sure. Well, we do have um, miner's lettuce, which is, um, it's, it's basically a spinach, um, which is super tasty. And then there are a bunch of um, chickweed coming up all over the place. That's a really nice mild one. And chickweed, chickweed emulsifies fats. Um, so if you're trying to lose weight, you can eat a bunch of chickweed and then do some sort of exercise and it takes the, the fats from solid adipose tissue and puts it into a, an emulsified form in your bloodstream. So you can actually metabolize that instead it's kind of fun but it's also tasty it makes a great pesto mm-hmm. um yeah it's just it, there are there are so many delicious things happening outside right now and it's a little bit early for most local farmers to have salad greens unless they have epic hoop houses and so i'm a huge fan huge fan you know don't get me wrong of supporting your local farmers but right now they just don't have a whole lot of um green salad stuff mm-hmm. and so so it's, it's a fun way to get outside, move around, have an activity to focus on. I feel like that's, this is a really nice, healthy way to get out of our own heads. Like again, if we're getting into those, those looping thought patterns or if we're getting stir crazy or cabin fever, just going outside and having something to focus on is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And focusing, this is, this is a bit of a rabbit hole. I don't know how far you want me to go down. This. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Foraging for greens is a really neat way to shift our, our brains into pattern recognition mode, which is really, really old. Um, and it's actually a skill building set. It, it, makes, it makes our brains more, um, more viable because you, you are making all these new little neural connective pathways. Um, and it's something a lot of us have lost, like that pattern recognition. A lot of people go outside and they look at a bunch of leaves and they're like, oh, it's a massive green. But no, they all have different shapes and textures. And being able to discern those different t- shapes and textures actually builds our neurology and it builds our ability to interface with the natural world so that we feel more part of it rather than have this kind of blunted sense of going outside. It's like, oh, just a wall of green. Like, no, no, there's a lot happening here. How does our work and how do our daily activities define us? And how does a change in routine challenge us? Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's quite um, an apropos question at this point in time, both on a large scale and, and for me personally on a small scale. Um, I've, have recently gone through many, many transitions. And I've, I've found that actually creating a schedule and creating a routine is one of the most grounding things I've found. Um, and so 
even in a change of work or a change of location or a change of dwelling or a change in pandemic status, trying to maintain um, a regularity in my schedule has been incredibly helpful. So I get up at the same time, whether I'm going to work, whether I'm not going to work, I just have that. So I have a, a nice even circadian rhythm going and I eat my meals at the same time, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at home, whether I'm quarantined, just try and keep that, that cycle and that schedule going. And that's really helpful for my digestive system as well as just for my sense of order and, and I can plan my day around things, even if my day is entirely empty and completely open. If I know that I'm sleeping at a certain time and I'm eating at a certain time, that gives me little touchstones to come back to. So that's been super, super helpful. And I know little teeny, teeny bits of Ayurveda. I know that that is one thing that is considered to be grounding, particularly for people who don't have a whole lot of earth element and kapha kind of energy in their, in their realms. That's exactly true. So a daily routine... Um, is absolutely one of the most grounding things. Not having a daily routine is the thing we all long for. We all long for that Saturday that we can wake up late and lounge around in bed and do whatever we want. And I'm finding it's one of the most distressing elements of my day is not having anything set out and not knowing what I'm supposed to be doing. That feels almost more distressing than almost anything else. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I absolutely hear that. And there's something also really helpful for me that I've, I've been noticing is setting out a list in the morning. I'll just wake up. I go for a walk every morning and you know, drink my tea, go for a walk, come back, make breakfast. And then I sit down and I just write my list of what I would like to accomplish that day. And then, then I have extra structure to go through and lean back into. And I find that really helpful if I'm puttering around the house or getting sucked down little rabbit holes or, God forbid, I check Facebook and people are all freaking out and then my neurology gets <laughs> amped up. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to go back to my list. I had things that were actually worthwhile that I was going to do today that do have meaning and will accomplish something. And it sounds, it sounds like kind of a, I don't know, a mediocre um, way to bring one's neurology back in. But really having a list and just having some sort of structure has been really helpful for me. It's so interesting. I found that even as I try to make a list, sometimes I don't stick to it or I get swayed off of it. Mm -hmm. I think that external structure has been such a part of my life and so many people's lives for so long that trying to get things done um, or trying to kind of get ahead, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes of get ahead. um, There's some drive that supersedes practicality, that supersedes schedule or intention And that drive, I think, is a combination of internal and external stressors and kind of memories. If we have memories of wanting that Saturday where we wake up and nothing happens, then we all kind of want that again, even though that may or may not be good for us. If we have drive that we're unsafe, then reading the news that confirms we're unsafe, that confirms fear, we just latch on to that. How do you pull back from that temptation to latch on to the triggers that you see in the outside world that can kind of match what your internal fears mm. and anxieties mm. are. Mm. That is something that I've, I've been really focusing on because I notice that oftentimes if we are habituated to, to a high stress environment, whether it be job or family or 
trauma responses, oftentimes, yes, our neurology is pre-primed to re-engage with the same exact types of stimuli that our neurology and our, our neurochemistry is, is already ready for. And so like if, if I have a strong trauma background, I have a lot of cortisol running, and then that becomes my, my primary energy source because I'm, I don't actually have enough sleep or enough food or enough natural energy to keep me going. So I need that, that like extra booster. And so what I will do is I will unconsciously or consciously put myself in situations where that there's a need for extra cortisol to come in so I can like maintain that chemistry because that's what I'm running on. It's kind of like running on coffee and cocaine rather than vegetables and protein and sleep. It's like, you know, once (laughs) once you get in that cycle, it's like you, you have to have the coffee and the cocaine or else you're not going to be able to get jack shit done. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's a great question. Like how to, how to re, recalibrate our nervous system and recalibrate our neurochemistry in such a way that we're not dependent on stressors or we're not dependent upon whatever sort of injury we're, we're really used to. And that's, it's a strange thing to say, but we do become dependent on whatever injury mechanism is, is most habitual to us. And so for mine personally, my, my injury pattern was, was the need to rise above what is reasonably expected of a person and, work 80 hours a week or take care of a dependent or multiple dependents, et cetera. And so I became so used to running in a mostly cortisol driven existence that I became totally, totally stuck needing that. And so in a large part, um, there's willpower (laughs) where it's like, Oh, I'm noticing this pattern. I'm going to will myself to just not set up these parameters that are going to require this of me. So how distressing was that initially? It was actually pretty intense. Um, if I, I called it a cortisol hangover, and it lasted months, actually, where I just had very, very little energy. And I, I'd become so used to running on hyperdrive and being outrageously productive that shifting into just running off of my own natural energy that I get from sleep and eating food and digesting food and absorbing food um, it was, it was really, it was really intense. I was noticing I could do one task a day. Like I could go to work and that's it. Like could not grocery shop after work that was out. And, and so it was really disorienting and, um, I had to recalibrate my expectations of myself and also communicate to other people who had normally relied upon me to do a whole lot of extra. That's like, no, I, I can't do any extra. I'm not doing anything extra. Um, so yeah, it took a couple months of just being really tired and really quiet and still. But then once that, that period of time closed, I feel like that cortisol hangover subsided. And now, now I'm running off of just normal energy, like sleeping and eating, and I can do more than one thing in a day. I'm actually, you know, relatively productive, (laughs) but it's not coming from that shaky cortisol driven space. If we, if so many of us define ourselves by either what we accomplish or kind of even by identifying with our trauma, now that the trauma for you has kind of closed and the cortisol hangover has closed, how do you, how do you define yourself? How do you think of your identity as Mm -hmm. separate from your activities? Because I think that's something that a lot of us are struggling with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Who are you? Who is a person? (laughs) <laughs> my experience 
of what a person, namely this person, is right now, is um, a very a very sensory oriented person. I take an hour walk every morning, and I just notice the smells, and I just notice the patterns of light on the ground, and I notice the way in which the birds catch updrafts, and the way in which the trees move, and I'm just very present with all of all the swirling life around me and how it is touching my body and my sense organs. And, and that's, that's enough. I'm, I guess my identity is sort of shifting into one who senses rather than one who does. And, and it's really lovely. It's, it's really profoundly lovely. That's amazing. That's amazing. It feels kind of like floating, like, um, you know, when, when you're swimming and you're swimming hard, maybe you're swimming in white caps and it's really choppy and it's just struggle. It's a lot of struggle to keep your head up. And then at some moment, I don't know, if, if you get too tired, you just stop and you just sit there and you float. And, and there's this kind of humbling realization. It's like, oh, that struggle actually was not necessary. I am buoyant. I am lighter than water. I just float. And there's... There's that feeling. I feel like that's what came after the cortisol hangover. It's just this feeling that I'm, I'm floating. Like, I do enough. I make food. I sleep. I eat. I go to work. I interact with people I love. I do useful things, but I'm no longer working 80 hours a week. I'm not volunteering all the fucking time. Um, I'm just, you know, doing, doing enough. And it's, and it's really, it's nice. <laughs> I, don't really, it's, I don't really know how else to describe it other than it being just profoundly nice. Um, so I've had this question a lot from patients and have discussed it and they've said, well, if I don't have my trauma, then what, what do I do? And what we talk about is that fundamentally we are, and this is what you're talking about as well, fundamentally we are animals on the planet. The mm-hmm. same way cats and um, birds and lizards, the same way every other animal is an animal on the planet. They don't think about their life in terms of how much have, how many mice have they caught today. Yeah. They think about it in terms of being part of the circle of life. And so advice I've given to patients is once the trauma is gone, then our job is just respirate like trees. Mm-hmm. The tree doesn't see its value in terms of how many feet it's grown or how many minerals it's brought up through its roots to its leaves or how many leaves it's made. There is a way in which we count our successes as humans that animals and plants don't necessarily count their successes. We are really here to watch. And so to, se- to be able to separate who we are from what we do, we are, coronavirus is giving us an incredible opportunity to separate what we do from who we are. And we're able at this moment in time, we're almost driven by this quarantine or by this fear or by facing our own potential mortality or the survival of those around us. It's very stressful to have other people lost around us, even if we're not going at this moment in time. And so to be reminded that our job is to be like animals here on the planet and in the animal senses, respirate like trees, as opposed to the animal of, fighting over toilet paper in the grocery aisles. What you're talking about is that piece of floating and perceiving. And that is something that inside of a quarantine, we absolutely can continue to perceive. I think it's almost a requirement that we somehow pull off of social media or pull off of news and 
plug back into our own sense of reality, our own sense of life, our own sense of respirating like trees, our own sense of floating. Very well said, Meisha. Thank you for that. I'm glad that you mentioned the, the pulling back from media. Um, you know, I, I check the CDC site every couple of days just so I have accurate data coming through and, you know, I'll check in on a couple of trusted, well-researched news sources, but it's not something that I'm watching constantly because I feel like that, that watching constantly, what it does is it just triggers stress responses in my body. And it's basically another way for an addict to get a hit. It's like, oh, that's going to give me more stress hormones. And then I'll have more energy to frenetically buzz around and do a bunch of useless things. I think Joanna Macy said that rats, when observed in laboratories, um, busy themselves with completely unnecessary and meaningless tasks when put under stress. And I have no interest in being a rat, busying myself with meaningless tasks um, <laughs> under stress. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking intelligent precautions and paying attention to, to facts, but I'm not obsessing. It's like my fingernails are cut very short. I'm not wearing hand jewelry. I wash my hands whenever I go out. You know, I'm doing all the intelligent things. I have a nice little stock up of food in case there is a, an obligatory um, quarantine of sorts, but it's not something that I'm obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, I know, I know I have enough food. I know I have enough water. I know that my neighbors have enough food and enough water. I know that all the people around me, at least at this moment, have all their basic needs met and we are connected to each other via texts and emails so that if anybody does have a need, like we can mobilize and help. I'm not just sticking my head in the sand. But then apart from that, I'm not watching the news at all. It's like, I'll check in, see if there are any pertinent updates or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And other than that, it's, it is of no value. It's of no value. There are those of us who are going to really struggle in this period and not necessarily with the virus as an illness um, and not even necessarily with losing people uh, who succumb to the virus, but also the recession and the economic inequality that has existed before and that this has just amplified for families trying to care for multiple children um, who are distressed, who are at home, who are bored who are trying to work from home while their children are, you know, playing at their feet. For those of us who are losing our jobs, for those of us who are going to likely lose housing, lose health care, those are some pretty incredible stressors that are the outflow of this coronavirus pandemic. Even within those stressors, having a clear mind will help people make the best decisions that can be made under duress. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, (laughs) I don't know how much of my history we want to go into, but one thing that I am really grateful for is that I have been homeless before and I have, you know, been malnourished before and I have had pretty intense illness before. And so coming in, I'm like, well, this is not my first rodeo. I know that I can survive through these things. And knowing that really releases a lot of the anxiety around it. It's like, well, if that's what it comes to, that's what it will come to. And I've also had close scrapes with death and I'm not afraid of dying. So I feel like I have mm, a slightly different perspective. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the fear is not a really large component for me. That's good. That's good. And that's a blessing. Think about mothers out there with chronic respiratory disease who would leave their babies alone. And there are elements of this that are terrifying beyond what a daily life or a routine can necessarily fix, but we always want to use our minds for good, use our 
thinking mind to make the best decisions possible. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I would emphasize for our audience is that if this is a situation in which you find yourself, that looking out for mutual aid society, I know we have that here in Seattle, looking out for supports, figuring out who can you rely on in your community, or if you don't have these resource um, resource deficiencies, if you have extra resource, who can you ask to depend on you so that we share each other's burdens in this time, whether that be by connection, um, by FaceTime or by email or by texting, we stay connected, um, or whether that be by sending money or sending resources. Um, the grandparents in my son's life have been FaceTiming a lot so that I have 10 minutes, 15 minutes to clean something up in the house or just even stare off into space. <laughs> um, and so that can be also very helpful is just giving each other our time via, via, via FaceTime, internet, whatever that may be. And to, to piggyback off of that, also offering help is, is a really important way to respond to stress. Mm-hmm. Like when, I, when I used to work for the, the Bellingham Human Rights Film Festival, a lot of the films presented really distressing topics and people would oftentimes leave feeling agitated and helpless and hopeless and sad. And I was like, no, no, this is not, this is not helpful. What we need to have is an action item afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that actually really helps our individual neurology. If we can say, Hey, this is something I'm concerned about. Can I be useful? Can I be of service? Can I be helpful? Because ultimately we are herd animals. We are pack animals. We are not isolated islands. And so it actually feeds us to be useful to others there is an altruistic element to it where yes, it's a pro-social activity to do because we need, we all need each other from very pragmatic standpoints, but then also from our own, I guess, evolutionary biology, we need to feel as though we are part of something else and that we are useful to the tribe, to the herd. And so just as you were mentioning, like if you have, if you have stockpiled extra toilet paper, if you've stockpiled extra canned goods, if you're seeing you don't need those, donate those to a local food bank, donate those to people who you do know are in need, or like you say, gifts of time, you know, just giving, giving parents who are working from home, you know, an hour break from their kiddo or bringing meals to somebody if, if they're not able to go out and, and eat in restaurants or cook or go to grocery stores, if, you know, taking reasonable precautions about not cross-contamination, but just there are lots of ways in which we can help each other that also helps us. It's not, it's not purely just for the good of the order. It's for the good of us as well as the good of the order. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to share with your friends and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our other shows as well. We talk about everything. You should also know that we have a local practice in Seattle, Washington, where we see patients in person and it's the anchor clinic for our online telemedicine visits. So we're happy to talk with you about coronavirus or any other aspects of your health via telemedicine. You can get all these details at www.centerforhealingneurology.com or give us a call at 206-379-1213. Party Fish Media is sponsored by, in part, Seattle Cider Company, Not your standard cider, Seattle Cider Company bridges the gap between wine and beer with flavorful small batch cider, bringing true craft cider back to Seattle and across the country. Seattle Cider Company's year-round and seasonal offerings break the mold of overly sweet cider, showcasing the incomparable flavor of Washington apples. 
naturally gluten-free and made from a custom blend of fresh-pressed, locally-grown apples, Seattle Cider Company's products are handcrafted with all natural ingredients and never from concentrate. Seattle Cider products are currently available throughout Washington, Oregon, Alaska, Idaho, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Nevada, Missouri, Massachusetts, Colorado, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Montana, and Pennsylvania. Visit our tasting room, The Woods, at 4660 Ohio Avenue South in Seattle. For more information, visit seattlecidercompany.com or follow Seattle Cider Company on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Seattle Cider Co. We are grateful for their support. So that's the social component. The other component that I heard you talking about in finding peace outside of work and outside of the usual daily routine and, and trauma and stressors is nature. So what role can nature play in anchoring us and getting our attention out? Oh, I, it, can, it can play millions of different roles for, for different people, but it is a wonderful way to take ourselves out of our own spinning vortex inside our heads. If we have looping thought patterns or if we have negative self-talk or if we have worry coming through, just expanding our awareness into a larger context and especially a larger context that makes sense. Like nature makes sense there from an elemental standpoint, from a biological standpoint, depending on your cosmology, from a spiritual standpoint, like it is, it is a place that makes sense. It's orderly. It's, it's beautiful. It's health inducing. And so for me, what's part of my, my daily practice is I go out for a full hour every morning and I'll say my gratitude prayers to the sun. Like when I'm feeling particularly alone and particularly not held by people in my life, I remember that the sun is holding us at the exact perfect distance so that we are just warm enough to not get burnt up and just cool enough. And, and we have this wonderful cyclic regular experience moving around the sun and spinning on our axis. And it's, it feels as though we're in a really lovely hug. It's like, Oh, what a perfect, what a, what a perfect expression of love. Mm-hmm. And then just going through like that, thanking the trees for the oxygen, thanking the trees for being the external component of my lungs, thanking all the green leafed creatures, thanking the birds for their beautiful songs. I mean, it can go on and on, but just realizing that we are given so many gifts by just being here, by just having sense organs. Even if we only have a few of our sense organs, there's still so many gifts. And so that's, that's how I begin my every day. It's just going out and, and giving gratitude to the entire system that supports all of us. And it really helps in, in moments of feeling isolated or moments of feeling failed by humans. I realize, like, oh, I have oxygen in my lungs every single breath, mm-hmm. every single one. That's, mm-hmm. that's an amazing gift. Like these are things that people cannot give to me. And, and if I didn't have them, no gifts and no amount of love or compassion or anything from another human could make up for it. Realizing all of the things that I could not have and then moving out into the day and realizing what is actually given to me is an amazing, wonderful start. Like I could not have oxygen, but yet I go out every day and I have oxygen. I could not have gravity. I could be crushed into the ground or I could spin off into space, but I do have gravity. I could not have warmth. I could not have light. All of these things that we take for granted and then forget to be grateful for. I just start my day every day with those things. And often if nothing else happens, no other good thing happens. I just have to battle with health insurance companies or 
do treacherous paperwork or I don't know, have arguments with dysfunctional family members. Like none of that matters as much because I have gravity, goddammit, and I have sunlight <laughs> and I have oxygen. And what you're talking about from the Ayurvedic perspective is called Mahat. Mahat is this universal intelligence, the cosmic order. There is a cosmic order that exists that is separate from all the machinations of our minds, whether they go from our minds can go wherever they go into the past, into the future. But in this moment, as in every moment, we do have a cosmic intelligent order about things. You're exactly right. Gravity is the same amount every day. There is routine, even separate from us. And so at every point in time, we have the opportunity to really click in back to those realities, to that cosmic order, and see ourselves as part of that cosmic order. This coronavirus, which is a global pandemic, is affecting us as humans and affecting our economies and affecting and disrupting our daily routines, but it is not actually disrupting cosmic order. It is not disrupting the universal intelligence of how the seasons move around the earth, of how the sun comes up, of the weather patterns. There's other things that are disrupting that, but coronavirus is not disrupting that. So when we think of our world as structured by our traumas, our memories, our work, our, the places we go, the people that we see, there's actually an opportunity here to see everything else that supports us in our lives and suddenly see that exist. So for years, you were the farm director for the Bellingham Food Bank Farm in Bellingham, Washington. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the role that gardens might play in our lives as we move forward with this pandemic, as well as just in life. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like to garden? (laughs) I do. Do I like to extol the virtues of gardening whenever possible? I do. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, there are so many wonderful reasons to have Victory Gardens right now. Yes, what you mentioned earlier, um, the food security and food sovereignty component is definitely a big one. And having the coronavirus may indeed interrupt supply chains. And even if it does not, there are many, many other things that have the potential to interrupt supply chains. So having, having local food supplies um, is really, really important just from a food security and food sovereignty standpoint. So yes, having... What, is food, um, what does food sovereignty mean? Yes. Well, food security... Um, We all, I think, know what food security means. It's having access to adequate nutrition at all times. But that can come in the form of food banks or food stamps or having airdrops of staples in famine-stricken countries. And so you are having adequate nutrition, but you are not in control of the supply chain, which means you're dependent on an outside source. Whereas food sovereignty, you have control of every component of the supply chain from production to distribution to consumption to waste management. Food sovereignty describes a food system that has autonomy built in. Food security describes a food system where malnutrition is avoided. So there's there's the difference. But food sovereignty includes food security, but it's much deeper and, and larger. Mm-hmm. So thank you for asking for that clarif- clarification. So I am a big fan of food sovereignty, although I did work for a food bank, which is a food security measure. I also taught farming to anyone who was interested in coming out and volunteering. 
and also part of the food banks program was to have these victory gardens. And so we would help build gardens in low income neighborhoods and then get people mentors to come and learn how to garden and grow their own food. So that was building food security, not just, or that was building food sovereignty, not just food security. But what we can do in our homes, um, if we have access to a pea patch, if we have access to a patch of sunny ground in our own yards, if we have access to neighbors' sunny property, any, any sort of little plot of ground that is not contaminated um, is, is basically a, a potential for food growing. So in these times of potential food chain interruptions and also in these times of economic downturns where perhaps food will be available in the stores, but perhaps we won't be able to access it for financial reasons, having access to our own growing power is, is really important. Um, and it's, it's easy. It's really easy. Like in the Northwest, we're, we're in a zone where we can grow a lot of stuff and we can grow greens year round, which is really, it's one of those things to be quite grateful for. It's really quite unusual. So those, those are some of the backdrop reasons of why it's a good idea um, from a financial standpoint and a food security standpoint. But then it's also a good idea from a health standpoint because being outside and gardening is really, really good for us. In many ways, coming in contact with soil is really important. Um, there are lots of transdermal microbes that actually reduce anxiety and depression that will soak through our skin and get into our bloodstream from the soil. So just the act of cultivating and digging nice soil is health-inducing, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's great exercise as well. I think if people are looking for ways to boost their base metabolic rate, Gardening is a really great way to do it, more so than something like running where you have a burst of, you know, caloric burning and boosting up the, the base metabolic rate and then it drops back down. Whereas when you're gardening, you're doing something for hours at a time, that will actually elevate your basic metabolic rate throughout the entire day. So it's great for fitness, but it's not something that you need to have really amazing knees for or a bunch of fancy sports equipment for which is nice, gets you outside, you're breathing fresh air, which is lovely. And then also a lot of studies are showing that people who have gardens in their yards or really close by have much higher um, vegetable consumption rates because it's fun. You're like, ooh, I'm going to go pick a salad for dinner because it's a fun thing to do, or I'm going to go pick a bunch of kale. And so they're eating more vegetables, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And then if you have kiddos involved, it normalizes, the, it normalizes the activity of eating vegetables and picking vegetables. And it becomes this really fun, fully interactive activity rather than, oh, I'm going to go stuff some green things in a plastic bag at the store. And then my mom's going to make me try and eat it and I'll be grouchy. It's more like, I grew these peas. Isn't this amazing? I'm going to eat a ton of them. I'm going to stick them up my nose. I'm going to eat more of them. <laughs> and so, so that's also really nice. And in addition to eating more vegetables when they're close by and they're not sitting on shelves in grocery stores or being shipped from other countries in trucks and boats and planes, they're not losing a lot of their delicate nutrition. So a lot of, a lot of the, the micronutrients in vegetables are, are quite delicate. And so as they sit on shelves, they denature, they oxidize, they just, they go kerplunk. And so you get you get decent minerals from them, but a lot of the vitamins are, are just not useful anymore. So when they're out in your yard, you're actually getting a higher nutritional density from, from your food. So more bang for your buck. And it's a hell of a lot cheaper. Like a packet of seeds, little seeds here, like, you know, three bucks. But there are hundreds of seeds in that little packet. 
And so for $3, I can have hundreds of onions. That's <laughs> that is so many onions. <laughs> so many onions. And these are storage onions. I'm also growing extra for our food pantry here because I have a feeling people are going to be hurting this year. Yeah. So that's also a neat way to help as well when we feel like, oh, geez, people are, are suffering around us. If I grow extra vegetables and then take yeah. those and donate them, there's that pro-social feeling that's happening where we're able to contribute to the whole. We're able to be part of the path, part of the tribe and feel useful. And it's helping our neighbors have good nutrition. So those are just a few of the reasons why gardening and having little victory gardens is awesome. There are more, so many more, but I could spend this entire podcast just on the virtues of gardening. I know, we probably will at some point. We, we probably will. And so if people were, um, what would be your first recommended six vegetables to try to grow? What is easy and... Um, yeah, what would be your first six recommendations for people to try with gardening that are easy, that are often self-tending, and that would be easy to cook and harvest and eat? That's a great question. Um, I'm assuming we're just talking in the Northwest. I would say anywhere. Anywhere. Well, that's a little bit harder of one. Um, in, in the Northwest, kale. Kale is a freaking weed. It's so easy to grow. You will, <laughs> you will start being somewhat amazed that you pay for it in the store, actually, once you start growing it. <laughs> um, but it's great when it's, you know, high nutrient density. It also is a biannual, so you plant it. If you plant it this spring, it will go all throughout this entire year. It will overwinter, most likely. You may even be able to harvest a teeny tiny bit off of it during the winter, and then it will come back next year and give you a whole other year of, of deliciousness. Mm-hmm. And one seed becomes like, you know, a three foot tall plant that is covered in bushy leaves. So kale, major, major thumbs up on that one. Um, Other ones that are really easy. Peas are nice. Peas are kind of a gateway vegetable. Um, Uh I feel like it's, (laughs) it's a fun one to start with because they're beautiful. They're delicious. Um, Peas are fun. Kids love them. Grownups love them. Um, They're pretty easy to cultivate. I would, I would probably recommend bush peas so you don't have to build elaborate trellises the first year. But if you're excited about doing little arts and crafts projects and want to build a trellis, they're also quite lovely. And, um, and they also are really good for your soil. They're a nitrogen fixer, so they'll help condition your soil. Um, greens are fun, like a spicy salad mix. That's also a really easy one. And you can do the cut and come again varieties where you just take little scissors, take your kitchen shears out, and just snip off the top and then they'll keep growing back. So you don't have to replant multiple times. Um, those are really nice. And they're also a fun one to grow because if you go to the store and you're looking at just the, the purchase price of mixed greens, they're pretty pricey. And so it's a nice way to cut back on grocery bills. And, and it's something that you use on a, you know, daily, if not, well, hopefully daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's a nice one. This is really easy. Zucchini are insanely easy. Um, you also get a lot of biomass. Mm-hmm. I recommend only one plant, one plant per family. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they, they're quite prolific. Uh-huh. And choose a variety that you're excited about. You know, they come in lots. You have patty pans, you have the green zucchinis, you have the crooknecks. Um, the crooknecks and patty pans are nice because they have um, more beta carotene, the little yellow guys. Those uh-huh. are fun. And they're, they're super versatile. So those are good ones. 
Um, well, chard is also a really nice one. Super sturdy. Um, it's beautiful. You get the rainbow chard, so you get lots of colors out there. You get your pinks and reds and yellows, so you're, you get to eat the rainbow a little bit. And it's also a biannual, so you just plant it this spring, and it will grow all year long. And then if we don't have a really, really hard frost, then it will come up next year as well. So those are nice. And I would say in a pinch, all the things that you mentioned can be grown in a either a five-gallon bucket. Not that I'm recommending the use of plastic, but mm-hmm. if that's the way, you can plant kale, you can plant mm-hmm. greens, you can plant all of that in a five-gallon bucket or in another type of container. You can do container gardening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, these all work in like flower boxes, pots. You can have them you know, on, this, on your stoop. Yeah. Absolutely. How do you make meals in a time of hunkering down? Mm-hmm. Well, I have done what most people have done. So I'm stocked up on, on food. So I have a nice, nice little store of, of things here. Um, and I just make them kind of as I do during normal times, just to keep a sense of normalcy and a sense of routine. You know, I still eat my meals at the same time every day and Alas, I'm not having dinner parties anymore, which is kind of a bummer, but um, I just I just make smaller, smaller portions of everything. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I'm you know, still making lots of bone broths and then using that as a base for soups and soaked grains when I'm eating grains and um, eating lots of root vegetables and lots of warming things. And um, I find that when, when my nervous system gets a little bit agitated or, or worried, just sitting down to a warm bowl of something is a, just a really nice, comforting, grounding thing. And so having having a big pot of soup made in the fridge is nice. So then I can come just warm it up, sit down, have my, my comforting meal. And I know that I'm getting good nourishment and I'm not going to be doing stress eating and eating a bunch of sugar, which is exactly the opposite thing that we ought to be doing right now. Sugar does weaken the immune system. Viruses yeah. work sugar in the system. Yes, in a, in a big way. And it also gives us all these like funky insulin peaks and valleys, which then mm-hmm. makes our moods less stable. So just making sure that there's good, even nutrient, an even nutrient stream coming in is really helpful and making sure that there's plenty of protein and good fats in that. That's really grounding. And then I don't have those peaks and valleys. So that's, that's really helpful, just making sure every meal has, is warm and has protein in it and lots of vegetables. All right. All right, so let's just review kind of what we've talked about today. We talked about um, essentially how to separate what we've been doing with who we are. We've talked about rooting down into our sensory perceptions and into ourselves as an animal on the planet. We've talked about separating our daily experience from our trauma. We've talked about embracing nature and our sensory perceptions as a sacred space for us to move our consciousness in and out of our internal environments. And we've talked about being out in nature and gardening as a way to solve multiple issues of food security, food sovereignty, disruption of supply chains, economic inequality, and economic Um, pressures as well as things to do with kids who are off of school as well as for parents to find uh, I love the the transdermal microbiome element of finding peace of mind while getting your hands into dirt Um, 
this is a really, really good start for reorienting ourselves from this place of, you know, moving forward, moving forward, moving forward with our job, having everything delicately placed, having it totally disrupted and having to grow again from the ground up. Do you have any other thoughts you want to add about any of this? Um, it's a great practice for all of us. Like this idea of, of having massive disruption and then having to recalibrate, the more adept we become at that process, the more successful of an organism will be. And the more adept we become at this process as a society, the more resilient and the more viable of a society we have. And so this is maybe an interesting time for people with trauma history, which is nearly everyone, to think about what sort of skills and abilities we have gained. Like, this is not, this is not our first rodeo. This is not our first rodeo from a cultural perspective of being burned down. And from a personal perspective, it's not our first rodeo for most of us of having massive loss. And so thinking back on the massive losses that we've had before and what sort of resiliency and what sort of skills we have gained from that and viewing them as assets rather than viewing them as deficits, I think this is a really powerful way to reframe and it gives us the potential to be more, more fit organisms. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Meisha, for being here with us today. And thank you all for listening with Meisha Jones. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Find us at centerforhealingneurology.com. And you can find art inspired by the natural world made by Meisha at indigojonesdesigns.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends, and we welcome your rating and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.